We're continuing on uh, with the series about the life of Elijah, and today we are uh, in 1 Kings chapter 17, and uh, I'll begin reading in verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God. And that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Elijah lived about 3,000 years ago. And he, you know by now he was God's messenger to God's people, the kingdom of Israel. And the king at that time was a wicked man, they may have. Along with his wife Jezebel, they were, they were a terrible influence on God's people. They were leading them into the idolatrous worship of the God named Baal, the God of the weather. And Elijah, as you know, had come at the very first of this chapter before the king and said there would be no rain except by his word. And then we saw last week how God told Elijah to, to leave there and go to a place east of the Jordan River to a ravine called the Cherith Ravine where there was a brook, there was a stream. And he was there for approximately a year. And God uh, brought food to him through ravens and, and water there at the brook. And then the brook dried up. And God told Elijah to go of all places, a strange place, to the north and to the country of Phoenicia, to a place, a, a small town called Zarephath. Uh, it's strange because that was right near the hometown of Jezebel, which was Sidon. And so he goes and God tells him that he is to stay in the house of a widow, which is also strange because in dire circumstances, widows would have been among the most vulnerable people and poorest of all. And that is exactly the case with the woman. We're not told her name, but when Elijah meets her, he asks her to prepare a meal, and essentially it's the last bit of food she says that they have, and she says, I'll prepare it, but then after that, my son and I will die. We saw how God provided, and each day, God, it was a continual miracle. God provided enough food for the household while he was there. And then we come to verse 17. Have you ever noticed that some of the most beautiful weather is, is right before a terrible storm, especially a hurricane? And the reason for that is as a hurricane spins, the vortex sucks the clouds out from around it years ago. We were in Panama City Beach as a hurricane was approaching. And I can't remember why we decided to stay. 
we were not being told to evacuate, but that definitely would have been the better thing to do. So at midnight, my brother-in-law and I were on the beach. It was, one, it was the clearest night I've, I think I've ever seen at the beach. The water was just still. It was like standing by a lake. And, but at 4 a.m., at 4 a.m., the raindrops were hitting the windows and the walls like bullets. Just four hours later. Well, that's essentially what happens to this woman. And it starts with a transition in verse 17, after this. Meaning after that long period of how God had provided supernaturally, perhaps for as long as a year now, uh, this food each day, after this, after all this provision, now her son gets sick, real sick, so sick that he dies. Now let me make a parenthesis right here. This is not a passage about how to deal with the death uh, of a child or any type of loss. That's not the purpose uh, of this passage. There are other places in the Bible that speak to that, but this is not one of those. And and I am keenly aware uh, in a crowd this size and in a, a church this size that there are a number of people that have lost children at various ages of life. Maybe they were grown children. Maybe they were infants. Um... In 1991, Jerry Setzer and his family were traveling. They lived out west where he was a teacher. And they were traveling at night, and they were hit by a drunk driver. And it was on a desolate road in the plains. And killed in that wreck was his mother, his wife, and a daughter. Three generations. And for an hour, he was there before help came. For the next three years, he kept a journal of what he was going through. It was, it was not a deep theological study. It was more his experience emotionally. He wrote down almost every day for three years. And at the end of that time, he had friends that said, you need to put that in a book. And he did. And, and that book is A Grace Disguised. Uh, and many people have found it helpful. He, he's written two or three uh, since then. It, how to deal with the grief of such a loss. Well, back to the widow. The widow in her pain uh, strikes out at the only person there, and that's Elijah. And what she says to him when she says, what, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. What an odd comment. Nothing has been said about this woman being guilty of anything or any sin from the past, and yet that is what comes to her mind. We have no idea what she's talking about. But apparently it had happened long ago. But in her mind, it was enough for God to kill her son as punishment to her, as judgment to her. And so she feels hopeless and helpless and condemned and interprets her son's death as God's judgment because of her sin. So here, Elijah, who we see through the chapter, the word of the Lord comes to, she sees him as God's representative of judgment. And that's why she lashes out at him, because she feels condemned. We might call this woman's condition not unbelief, but disbelief. It's not unbelief, it's disbelief, and there's a difference between the two. An unbeliever... If you might categorize yourself as an unbeliever, that is someone who has not yet put his or her faith in God. The widow 
was not an unbeliever in that sense. She apparently had strong faith in God at this point. We don't know all the specifics. But she had received and recognized the miraculous gift of the food each day, the flour and the oil. She had demonstrated enough faith in God to trust his word and to give Elijah the, the main course of her last meal. And yet this trial makes a disbeliever in her. She was in disbelief about the goodness of God. So you can be an unbeliever and a disbeliever at the same time. She knew a lot about God's grace from the food that was being supplied, but she had not learned to trust him yet as a daily walk. She was filled not with grief so much at the moment, she's filled with resentment and anger. And she has totally misunderstood or misinterpreted what had happened. Now, uh, let's not be harsh toward her. And if I sound harsh toward her, I'm not. She has lost everything when she lost her son. A Bible teacher, A.W. Pink, years ago said, in him, talking about the son, in him all her affections were centered. And with his death, all her hopes of care for the future and companionship were gone. And it all happened so suddenly. We're not told how long he was sick, but the way it's summarized in the passage, it seems like it happened quickly. There they had been starving. God provided. She watched this. And now her son dies. Things went from bad to good to worse. And it all seemed so unfair. So what does Elijah do? He's moved with compassion. He doesn't argue with her. He doesn't ask her questions about what she's making reference to, about something from her past. She, he doesn't try to defend God. There's no defense of God in this passage. And that is usually our inclination. When someone in grief lashes out at God, we typically want to say something to correct them. There's a time and a place, and I, I don't think that's the time or the place. Maybe sometime in the future, but not then. And all Elijah does that we're told, he stands before her and he says, give me your son, which means he must have been pretty young. He must have been small. He carries the, the lifeless body up to the upper room. He lays the body on the bed. Then he cries out to God. Verse 20. O Lord my God, have you brought calamity upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? He's putting the fault with God too. Is he letting God off the hook in that sense? Is he saying God didn't have anything to do with this? We only, God only controls good things, not bad things. No, he says, you've done this, God. And he's perplexed as well. He stretches himself out. We're not told why. Uh, there's just speculation. Body to body, arm to arm, leg to leg, three times. He cries out, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And in verse 22, after all the passages, through uh, all the verses through this chapter, saying the word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord came, told him to go to the brook, the word of the Lord came, said move to Zarephath. Now it said the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. So Elijah was not only God's messenger. In this sense, God listens to Elijah. And the life of the child, it says in verse 22, came into him again and he revived. And Elijah picks up the child. He carries him down from the upper chamber and he gives him to his mother. And all he says is, see, your son lives. 
This is the first account in the Bible of God raising someone from the dead. If you've never read the Bible and you think it's, it's a book filled with all sorts of things like that, that people are just walking around and dead people, were, it's not that way at all. This is the first account of that. We cannot, there's no way to think the widow's standing stoically off uh, to the side watching and then just quietly says, now I know that you're a man of God and the word of the, the Lord is in your mouth. No, she believes, she knows. We can only imagine the joy and the emotion at that moment. And her response is the climax of the chapter. I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The disbelief is gone. She has now gained insight through her terrible experience. God has proven himself trustworthy and faithful. Let me conclude with two lessons about trials. There are many that could come from this passage, but just two. And first is one we talk about probably frequently here at this church, and that is your trials are not just about you. The widow begins with this very tunnel vision, narrow misinterpretation of the trial. God is punishing me by killing my son because of something I did in the past. But it was a whole lot more than that. We don't even know if that was part of it. We're not given the explanation. And your interpretation of what is happening to you will always be restricted. It will always be limited. You will only see a small part. John Piper said, At any moment God is doing thousands of things, and we might be aware of four or five of them. We don't know what this child grew up to do and to be and how God might have used him to influence thousands of lives. And at that moment, she in her grief could only think, what is God doing to me? Back in 1993, there was an Amtrak train traveling from Los Angeles to Miami and then in, in South Alabama. And there was a trestle uh, over a bayou and it train went off of that. It had been hit by a barge and the, the track was, was damaged and the train flew off and caught fire. 47 people died. R.C. Sproul, the Bible teacher and theologian, and his wife Vesta were on that train. And he lived the rest of his life with a back injury that, that happened from that, that train crash. I read an interview with him a year or two after the crash and the interviewer, along with other questions, asked him, why did God allow this to happen? And I appreciated his response. He said, I know enough theology not to attempt to answer that. He knew, in my human perspective, I can't answer that question. Be very careful of trying to interpret the trials in your life or the trials in others when we just don't know all that God is doing. The second lesson is a lesson about death. The first about trials and the second about death. This, there's almost a parallel passage to what happens in this household to what happens over in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Jesus is going into a town called Nain, N-A-I-N. And he drawn, as he comes near the gate of the city entrance, uh, uh, a man who's being carried out, the only son of his mother, so this, this woman's a widow, there's a considerable crowd gathered around here. It's a funeral procession. And what happens? 
Uh, each widow has lost their only son. Uh, they both are getting ready to see a miracle. And what happens is Jesus speaks, speaks to the, to the corpse that's being carried out. And he comes back to life. And it concludes, the passage concludes, with fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. However, even though they're similar, widow, only son, so forth, death, they're different in that in Elijah's case, he cries out to God in prayer for help to give back the life of this child three times. But what does Jesus do? Young man, I say to you, arise. You see the difference? Christ is the resurrection power. He doesn't call out to anyone else. Like Elijah was dependent on God to do this, Christ himself just says, arise. So Jesus never sinned. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus took our judgment upon himself instead of pouring on those who, ju- who deserved it. He was raised from the dead and is now interceding for us. He was and is our prophet. And so this is a hint. Both situations, Elijah raising the the son of this widow, Jesus raising the widow's son in Luke chapter 7, they are hints of what's referred to in Revelation chapter 1, where God says, I am the living one, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Believer, know that not even death Not even death can place you beyond the grip of his hand and the sound of his voice and the touch of his power. The God we serve, the living one is the living one with power over life and over death, and he is worthy of your faith and your trust and your all. Let's pray together. Oh God, we certainly don't have power over life and death, and we are so fragile. We are here one day and gone tomorrow, and we suffer grief of the, the, the loss of loved ones, and often we've tried to interpret those things in the same way this widow did, and it was a misinterpretation. We pray that you would be glorified in our lives, even as we limp along. Help us to grow in belief and not suffer from unbelief or disbelief. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. And that every knee one day will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.